0: Rebecca McCain here, and you are listening to Bar Crawl Radio Podcast. Love
1: for sale. Appetizing young love for sale.
0: A few months ago, Alan Winson and I spoke with India Thuzi. About her study of the interaction of sex workers and the police in Johannesburg, South Africa. We wanted to explore the current state of prostitution and our own attitudes and feelings about sexual intercourse as work.
1: Today, we'll be speaking with Samantha Magic, a professor in political science at John Jay College of Criminal Justice. Professor Magic looks at the links between gender and American politics. We'll be talking about her 2014 book, Sex Work Politics, From Protest to Service Provision, which focuses on sex work and civic engagement.
0: We are recording on the porch of Gephard's Beer Culture Bar on West 72nd Street, across the street from the mortuary and down the block from Riverside Park, where the Hudson Classical Theater is now performing below the Soldiers and Sailors Monument. Check them out. And with that bit of an introduction, here. Welcome to Bar Call Radio. So your previous books deal with the topic of sex work. What led you to this academic focus?
2: Uh, So I guess I began when I was in graduate school. I did my Ph.D. at Cornell in government. And uh, I was very interested in looking at gender and policy, very broadly defined. And uh, one of my uh, advisors in graduate school, a woman named uh, Anna Marie Smith, was doing a lot of research on the sexual regulation of poor women through things like welfare reform measures, and so this idea that you know some women's and another person's sexuality is regulated more than others was interesting to me, and so I and guess we're dealing with that
1: big time. Yeah, now. right now, and, we, and we're going to come back to that at the end of the sure. podcast. Yeah, yeah. Uh,
2: and so you know, prostitution came up, and prostitution—I'm talking specifically the illegal form of sex work in most of this country. Um, came to me as one of these interesting areas where, you know, despite all of the, again, relative progress that um, different marginalized groups have made on sexual rights, um, LGBT community, et cetera. Um, sex work has really kind of gone nowhere you know it's it's remained largely criminalized and so you know that just started raising a lot of questions for me you know why is this um not changing of, of all these issues um that women have made so especially have made so many strides I and mean, i keep saying women because the majority of people uh trans or cisgender who trade sex or at least who are penalized for training sex are women um there are many men who trade sex but the focus the research and the um law enforcement focus on them has never been as significant
1: yeah, I mean, all those narratives we have about the, you uh, know, the, the prostitute and kicking a prostitute out of the town, and mm-hmm. you know, um, I mean, we're still living with those, and it hasn't changed, and it pretty much is surrounding the woman,
2: mm-hmm.
1: prostitute, right? Yes. Yeah. Yeah. A few weeks ago, we spoke with India Thusi, uh, whose uh, study is called Policing Bodies. I don't know if you're familiar with it. She used an ethnographic approach to understanding the relationship between prostitutes. And police mm-hmm. in Johannesburg, and so she was there amongst the prostitutes and um, and observing what's going on. Your book, Sex Work Politics, looked at nonprofits in California that provided health services for sex workers, but also gave these women and men a platform for advocacy, mm-hmm. which is where, what your interest is. Why did you take this approach rather than more of an ethnographic approach?
2: Um, so I guess it was you know a function of. Uh, conditions and access. So an ethnographic approach uh, usually requires one to um, almost live quite deeply within the community uh, or the population that they're studying. And for what I was studying, you know, the bigger, bigger question I was interested in is what happens when activists move from protest into you know, the more formalized nonprofit sector, you know, can they maintain their radical commitments when they're getting donor and government money, right? So this is kind of like this bigger political science question. And to study this, um, ethnographic immersion in my sites, I don't think was was really feasible or practical. So these, uh, the two organizations, one is a clinic, one focuses on street outreach, they have limited hours. You kind of can't be there 24-7, and it just didn't really work with the... No, that's that the St.
1: James Infirmary.
2: And the Ca- and the California Prostitutes or, Education Project. Right, which yeah. we're going to call CalPEP. Cal-Pep. Yeah. Okay. So ethnographic immersion wasn't really, um, I think, feasible or practical, and so I chose more of a participant observation-oriented, uh, where I would be involved in their... Uh, different programs I would be at their offices on different days of the week and then I was also doing a lot of interviews with people not only involved with those organizations but in the city and the, and in some cases the state more broadly and did you interview the
0: sex workers as well
2: yes, yes. I interviewed uh, 40 sex workers uh-huh.
0: yeah in the 1980s AIDS was tearing through the country it was tearing through the country and sex workers were seriously impacted your study looked at three organizations, so you, as we've just mentioned, in San Francisco that helped this community with the health services. And you volunteered at one of them. Um, could you tell us about St. James Infirmary and the California Prostitute Education Project, also called CALPAP?
2: So, so actually, mm-hmm. I was just at two, the book focuses on just two of them CALPAP and St. James Infirmary, and I was at both of them. Okay. My, my research was at both of I them. I
1: think the third one we're referring to is Coyote.
2: So, yeah, that's the organization that. Kind of gave birth to those two organizations. Okay. Right. Yeah.
1: And Coyote stands for.
2: Um, call Off Your Old Tired Ethics. I love it. it. Yeah. Right. So, yeah, in the book, I talk about how, you know, there was this organization, Coyote, that was largely focused on kind of more traditional protest and other um, disruptive tactics of trying to change norms and laws around prostitution. And so out of those two organizations, a number of the women, um, it, especially as the AIDS crisis was coming to a head and sex workers were being scapegoated for the uh, emergence of HIV AIDS in the heterosexual community. So when heterosexual men started to present with HIV, sex workers were blamed as the vectors, quote unquote, of transmission.
0: So can you tell us about the, the, those two nonprofits, St. James Infirmary and CalPep? Uh, sure, yeah. So
2: so the first one, uh, CalPep, um, was largely uh, the brainchild of this woman, Gloria Lockett, who is an African-American woman, a sex worker, who worked uh, all across California and Alaska. And she had been arrested many times, and uh, she knew, too, that women of color, especially from her own experience, were more likely to be arrested and targeted in different ways, especially than white women. She... You know, really, Gloria is politically brilliant and also extremely attuned to what is going around on around with her. And so she uh, saw, too, she said, you know, if they're coming for gay men with HIV, AIDS, the next people they're going to come for are the prostitutes. And so she started to just go out on the street with other Coyote members, hand out condoms do education on you know what you could educate about HIV transmission at the time. And remember, we didn't know as much then as we did now.
1: And this all, is all in San Francisco?
2: Yeah, this is all in San Francisco. Right. So she started uh, with her, some of her Coyote peers, going and doing these little like group education sen- um, sessions. Again, peer-to-peer, right? So that people would trust each other. And handing out condoms, talking about safe sex practices. And then eventually uh, getting some money from the city and then eventually even from the Centers for Disease Control. And so CalPET became uh, now, at least when I was studying, it had a a two million plus dollar a year budget, largely from, um, it moved to Oakland actually. And also, so it had a lot of state and federal funding, a lot of CDC funding for that. Um, And then the St. James Infirmary grew out of uh, the efforts of Coyote members, but also dancers. And it was founded in 1999 as a clinic, more specifically, that would serve sex workers. So while well, um, CalPeP has been largely, they have a largely mobile outreach system, going out on the streets, meeting people where they're at. Um, St. James Infirmary is a clinic.
1: I think we should mention St. James Infirmary is, meant, is, is uh, named after Margaret St. James. Margot, yeah. Margot yeah. St. Yeah. James. I don't yeah, know. Yeah, she just formally. passed away
2: last year. Oh. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. Which who, who, she was a real powerhouse. Right? Yeah. Absolutely. Can you say a little bit about Margot. So, yeah, so Margot, you know, uh, was a woman who worked as a sex worker. She was also politically involved, very involved in San Francisco politics. And she really was, and she was also attuned to the disparities, especially the racial and gender disparities in in prostitution arrests. And so she took this on as uh, this was her cause, and she was a tireless advocate for this until she died just in the past year.
0: During your studies for your book, you worked for CalPAP.
2: I was with both of them. I'd go right, back and forth. Go back yeah. And forth. So
0: what was the atmosphere like? either one or both?
2: I mean these are these are just incredible organizations that are doing a lot with very little. So, you know, Calpep at the time it it had its it's sort of it had an office setting that was in at the time, um, a, an old city health building, which is kind of ironic. And um so you'd go in there and they're just, you know, people, they have a lot of administrative work to do. These They're administering big grants, and then people are just kind of coming and going, you know, picking up condoms, picking up supplies to go and do. They have these big mobile vans that they would take and park in different areas of Oakland so people could get HIV testing and access connections to other services. Um, the St. James Infirmary was open for clinical hours at different points during the week. And so, you know, it was like a clinic, but everybody there was a sex worker. So you come in, there's a waiting room, people are waiting for their appointments. They had a food and clothing bank in another room and a computer that people could use. And it was kind of just like a community setting, but for sex workers. Right. Yeah. And
1: clearly they felt more comfortable going there than, say... A hospital order, an emergency yes. order. Yes,
2: yeah, absolutely, yeah. because people there aren't going to judge them for what they're doing. They don't have to worry that someone might call the police uh, for talking about what they're doing, and so definitely uh, it, it was a safe space. Yeah, it remains a safe space, yeah. Yep.
0: So you write about during the AIDS epidemic that the federal government did not want to get involved in taking care of the health of sex workers, but it was it was politically better to, to fund the nonprofits to do the work. Um In fact, weren't these nonprofits more knowledgeable about how to care for this really vulnerable population?
2: Um, Yes, and you know, so they kind of were on the forefront. Well, and this is in in kind of a long lineage of what we'd call peer-based health service provision, right? So we saw that with the women's health movement, right, where women in the 70s were, uh, through the Jane Collective, for example, were offering abortion when you know people couldn't access abortion. Uh, We saw this with HIV AIDS. with gay men going and administering HIV-AIDS prevention services to their peers. Um, So we've seen this in, you know, a number of other cases. And so that's, um, you know, what we would see. And so health authorities did eventually catch on to this. And so there is now much more funding for these types of health interventions, what are called peer-based health interventions, especially in the HIV-AIDS space. And we can thank um, sex workers for largely being behind them. What sorts of health services did the clinics provide? So the St. James Infirmary, it was a pretty much a full-service um, health service clinic. You could go and get gynecological care. I don't know if you had a, a cold and you wanted to ask someone about it. You know, it was a, it was a clinic like any other clinic. Um, and uh, CalPEP, it was because they had the mobile van service. Um, it was more focused on HIV testing. And then, you know, if people had uh, and testing and prevention, and they'd also do things like offer meals. So, like, while you're waiting for your test, you could get something to eat. And if people had questions or needed referrals to other services, they would offer that as well.
0: Do they still um, provide service? Does yeah, both of these are, are still, still
2: operating, yeah. Wow. Yeah. Has
0: it changed? Has it shifted?
2: I mean, what's shifted the most, I think, um, are their locations. They've had to move a lot. These are uh, So uh, the St. James Infirmary is in San Francisco, and Calpep is in Oakland. This is the Bay Area. It's Bay Area real estate, right? And so you're constantly getting kind of moved and priced out of different areas, so um, their locations have changed. Um, probably their budgets have changed a lot, especially with different federal administrations. When uh, I was there doing my research, it was kind of like peak Bush 2 administration. You couldn't use the word sex work in any of your grants. Uh, you had to say things like prostituted women instead. Uh, because
1: Prostituted women? Yes. because As if this was something done to them?
2: Yeah. Yeah, because this was the belief that all like, and this this is a belief that's still pervasive today but that like all sex workers were victims and we so we you know we would write these I would help with grant writing and we got one grant rejected for that very reason that we use the term sex worker well
1: yeah I mean, um, so so clearly these um, NGOs were set up to help with the health of the sex worker mm-hmm. and that that aspect of, of that part of our society has improved because we've learned. I mean, they they, they were being helped. But your book really also, I think, predominantly focused on that these institutions did more than care for the health of the sex workers, they advocated for them
2: yes. in some ways
1: uh, with progressive policies, changes in law, politically. Yeah. I wonder if we could talk about that.
2: Well, so it's an in, these are these uh, organizations like any other five hundred one c three nonprofit nonprofit um, actually are restricted under federal law from lobbying specifically. Um, so if you have a five hundred one c three nonprofit, you're exempt from federal taxes, but in exchange for that, you are also not allowed to lobby, and so. Um, how these organizations would kind of work around this is they would do sort of educational uh, so they would they would testify at city hearings about here are the benefits of for example, um, a, a well-funded sex worker clinic and what this can do. So they couldn't um, talk to specific pieces of or lobbies for specific pieces of legislation per se. Um, actually nonprofits can do that if they make this thing called an H election but very few actually do that it's also so complex. Yeah, to stop to stop
1: Americans from talking about what they want to talk about.
2: Well, and also, and some many scholars like Jeffrey Berry at Tufts argue that this is a way of kind of silencing the voices of the the organizations serving some of society's most vulnerable people. So, nonprofits, our welfare state is largely administered through nonprofits. You know, the federal and state governments fund nonprofits to carry out government services, right? So. It, it
1: because they know how to do it, and the government yeah. doesn't.
2: And, and so they yeah. and so they have to be non political, and yet our churches
0: do not, obviously. Right. right
1: that's there's a whole that. Other thing yeah, that, I know. It's another. <laughs> oh no, I know. I oh, that, so There's another. That's, that's another whole thing. Yeah. That yeah. that's slippery slope. Um, one of the interesting, strange bedfellows that came out of this discussion of prostitution, whether it's legal or illegal, uh, and you present to the uh, present the idea of the misconceived narrative of the conservative religious right mm-hmm. and the radical feminists yeah. on the full on the left yeah. who saw the sex worker as victim yeah. who needed help. Yeah. Uh, and then Coyote used the sex worker as victim narrative. They used it in order to set up these health initiatives.
2: So Coyote actually would resisted this idea that sex workers were victims, right? It was this idea that they're workers, right? So these are, are women who, for any variety, women and other persons who Person of other genders who for a variety of reasons are making this decision to engage in this kind of work. Whereas uh, with radical feminists and, uh, and the religious right, um, this is an, an, an alliance that the scholar Elizabeth Bernstein um, at Barnard identified, she called it this coalition of strange bedfellows, right, where you had the radical feminists uh, who, who always wanted to abolish prostitution and the religious right who are aligned on that. And by carrying on this victim, this narrative that all sex workers were victims, and specifically victims of sex trafficking, um, they were able to work together to achieve their goals. So these
0: nonprofits provided what you called message spaces
2: mm-hmm. um, for the sex workers who were using their health
0: services. What are
2: messages?
0: Excuse me. What are message spaces? I mean, I don't remember
2: using that term exactly, but they they provide. I got it from
1: your book. Really? Yeah. <laughs> I
2: don't think I use message. Okay. <laughs> I haven't read my own book in a long time. <laughs> it's, um, it's a good book. You should read it. Yeah. <laughs> so good stuff in it. After you finish a book, the last thing you want to do is read it. Yeah, but, but um, you, you
1: you get the idea of the message. Yeah, space, yeah. The so they
2: they talk about so this happens in a number of different ways. So these spaces just use the word. They refer to what people doing is as sex work, right? Which is a huge act in and of itself. Also, in the St. James Infirmary, they had a big sign on the wall that said "Outlaw Poverty, Not Prostitutes," right? That's a distinctly political message. Um, you know, at, at both organizations, they hired peers. So they hired people they were serving to reach out to their community, which is also another kind of messaging, saying that, you know, you can do this, right? You can be empowered in your own health. So those were just some of the ways that messaging there worked.
1: So I mean, the, way, the idea that I got from, from reading the book is that, you know, I'm a sex worker, I come in, I'm getting some health service. But there are other sex workers that are sitting there mm-hmm. with me. Yeah. And I get to talk with them and talk about the issues that I'm having with the police or Yeah.
0: Whatever. So do you remember any specific examples, any stories about these I mean, kind of conversations? I mean, to be honest, when I
2: would sit in the, in the, um, in the, the um, waiting room... Or anywhere, nobody was really talking about that. There may be I mean a lot of these people have a lot of other things going on in their lives, right? Like I remember once sitting in there it was around Christmas and there was a huge conversation about poinsettia plants and like, you know, oh. where to get a poinsettia. Like kind Wait of, a minute.
1: these these people they're people.
2: They're humans, imagine they're human beings. Wow. you know, with just like Mind thinking boring. about Christmas, imagine. Right. You know? right.
1: <laughs> so they're not talking about work.
2: No, no. I mean, I don't. I don't want to talk about work with my friends most, or people I'm with most of the time either. So, but do, you yeah. this, do you think
0: that this this space had anything to do with changing a, um, a self, a, a negative self image at all?
2: Um, I mean, yes, in the sense that this is a space, a rare space where they could be open about what they're doing and not be judged, right? Um, and they're, they're supported in what they do. So this isn't like, for example, I, I don't know, maybe going to a more religious organization where it's like, here, you can have a meal, but then accept Jesus as your Lord and Savior, right? This is just kind of come as you are and we'll meet you where you're at, right? And, so I, and I think there's something about that that's, I think that'd be very affirming for anybody. Um, yeah, I think just that in and of itself. It's
1: a very interesting concept that when you sit down with fellow workers... You may not talk about work. You may talk about poinsettias. <laughs> point right, seven. right. And um, we just don't carry that narrative. I mean, when you say I'm, you know I'm a prostitute, you go like, oh my god.
2: Yeah. yeah. Well, in the state we for me did this amazing um, public awareness campaign called "Someone You Know is a Sex Worker." Right. So they had these signs with the picture of a person. They say sex workers go to school and take care of their kids. Someone you know is a sex worker. And probably all of us in in our lives, if we're honest or dig a little deeply, we all know somebody. Um, Even if you don't do research and know people in this field, like we all know people who have exchanged sex for something, right? So,
1: Marriage at one time was considered an exchange of sex for a position, right?
2: Mm -hmm. I was wondering, or
0: we are wondering, if... Coyote also worked on how law enforcement dealt with the sex workers. How did they? I mean,
2: that was the motivating um, force behind it, right? So this idea that you know people were being arrested, and specifically women, and often women of color on the streets were being arrested for this activity. I mean, most of the women who joined Coyote initially joined because they had been arrested and they wanted help and support. And you know, Gloria Lockett, when she she had a huge trial you know with her with one of the men who kind of helped facilitate her work and you know Margot st james was with her every day at the at the trial and so what they, was she accused of um it was everything with like pimping and prostitution it was like okay. it was a huge um yeah
1: she was on trial for the work she yeah. was
2: doing yeah and and ralph washington who worked who worked with her yeah
1: Right,
2: right. Um,
0: so, have they I want to know though. I want to finish. Just did have some goals changed, and, and were they successful in getting this? I mean, is it still criminalized there? Yeah.
2: So, actually, just very recently, um, California um, de- basically decriminalized loitering. Right. Which so like loitering laws. Um, have or, or what some would call walking while trans laws, right, have been the way that a lot of people are picked up for prostitution. So you're seeing kind of like standing outside and just hanging around and you're maybe dressed a certain way. You don't um, look a gender conforming way. You're very likely to be picked up for loitering. And so California just got rid of that, which was a big step. But I mean, no prostitution still remains criminalized. And so in most places in the United States. And so that goal, I I think, has not been realized. But I think we're getting a little closer. Um, People are more open to, I think, more open to it now. We have a bill in the New York State Senate that has been hanging out for a while. Um, You know, there's movement. I think people are more supportive of it. But getting someone a politician to stand up and say, you know, yes, we should acknowledge this as a form of work. It always sparks this outcry. Well, what about the trafficking victims? And it's like, well, that's a different issue. Well, I mean, what what
1: would be the advantage of a politician going in that direction? Right. In this this, uh, environment? Exactly. Right. Right. We we did a program uh, with some um, community um, organizers in Brownsville. Um, and they, because they know their community mm-hmm. and they're on the ground and they want to improve it, they've come up with very interesting, innovative ways of, inc- of, of making life better for Brownsvillians, yeah. right? Yeah. Um, I'm wondering, is there a similar situation with CalPEP and, um, and um, St. James Infirmary in that they understood the AIDS epidemic? Mm-hmm. Because when the AIDS epidemic was coming out in 1980s, whatever, it was totally new. Yeah, and if you were gay or a sex worker, you were kind of on your own, Absolutely. because the medical yeah. establishment didn't know what to do. Um, <laughs> were these organizations, these NGOs, able to help their um, their, their their people in in ways that were? Innovative? I mean,
2: absolutely, right? If you if you got a condom from a CalPap street outreach, that was new. That was new, and that was and someone gave it to you with you know, out arresting you or telling you you had to stop what you're doing. I mean, that's huge. Yeah. Especially in the, especially in the 1980s. Right.
1: As simple as that. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, And,
2: you know, it told you maybe where you could get a test, um, wasn't telling you you had to stop what you're doing, that you're a bad person. That's a, that's a big deal.
1: I'm Ellen Winston. This is Bar Radio Podcast. Rebecca and I are talking with Professor Samantha Magic of John Jay College about her book, Sex, Work, Politics. We'll be right back. Kind of addressed this idea that um, the sex worker, the prostituted woman, right. is in fact a human being, mm-hmm. right? Um, certainly they are... Sex workers that are victimized. There is sex trafficking. Mm-hmm. There is sex tourism. There mm-hmm. is male bride, male order brides. Mm-hmm. Prostitutes are mistreated by cops and their clients. This is all true. Yeah. This all yeah. happens. Mm-hmm. But that is not the whole story. And I think that's no. what we've been talking about. And I wonder if we can get to it more directly. Sex workers also have agency. They are making mm-hmm. decisions absolutely for themselves yeah. um, and their own families. Mm-hmm. So should. Can we talk about that? I mean, do we ever get to the place where we can actually have that conversation that these are people, and maybe you could talk about some of the people that you met?
2: Sure, yeah. I mean, so I think one thing that we have to contend with is there's been this very, what, you know, my colleague Chris Shodan and I write about in our book, Youth, of Tra- Youth Who Trade Sex, is this dominant narrative that has, you know, since the late 1990s when globalization saw more people moving For work, generally, and media attention immediately went to women who would move for work and be in brothels, and so a lot of these NGOs and and uh, media were sort of up in arms about this, right? And so soon, the dominant narrative of of human trafficking in the age of globalization became about sex trafficking. And so, anytime you know there was a discussion of human trafficking, it would be well the sex trafficking, the sex trafficking, the sex trafficking. And yes, this is terrible, and it happens, but. It is arguably a very small part of forced labor when we look at all the sectors of the economy, agriculture, domestic work, the garment industry, etc. Right. But there's this hyper focus on sex. And so soon sex trafficking becomes conflated with sex work. Right. And these are talked about as if they're the same thing. And we see this in movies. We see this in CNN exposés. We see this on the news. Right. So it's really, really hard for, to sort of like get that narrative, this dominant narrative out of public discourse right. and see that, you know, actually, yes, there is the sex trafficking victim in the Nicholas Kristof story in the New York Times, right? But then there's also the mom who maybe has sex with a neighbor for 50 bucks to help put on a kid's birthday party from time to time. And then there's also, you know, the very high end escort charging $2,000 an hour or whatever, right? Like, there's this whole spectrum of activity. But we, in our most of our public discourse, especially in the United States, tend to focus on that one, and that is the, and the that, topic. And that's different.
1: all we hear. Everything else Pretty gets silent. Pretty much, silence. yeah. Right. Could could you, without naming anyone, name someone that you met during your studies that was doing sex work in order to make a living?
2: I mean, this was everybody that, at you know, who used the services and even sometimes and, and worked at these organizations. But does
1: anyone come to mind?
2: I mean... Um, sure. I mean, there, there were people with a range of stories. So there were um, there were some, I, I met people who, for example, had struggled uh, with, with drug use, right? Dr- uh, drug use issues, right? And so they had done sex work as a means of helping them meet their addiction needs, right? And then were working on, that was really the big issue. And the sex work was kind of secondary, right? This was just a way of... You know, surviving. Um, and then I, I met, you know, a, a, there was another woman, you know, college educated who did kind of just like fetish work with clients, it charged a lot of money for that. This was something that helped pay for, you know, a graduate degree and things like that. So, I mean, there's just this whole spectrum of people. It becomes really unremarkable, to be honest, um, that, you know, it's just, these are people just doing what they need to do to meet their needs. And, and this is a
1: choice they're making to do it, Yeah, in are not hurting themselves
2: or other people. Yeah, and some would argue, well, what kind of choice is it if you are a drug addict, right? But, you know, there the issue is not the sex work per se, it's the addiction and the lack of access to services to treat addiction, right? The sex work is kind of secondary. Or, you know, let's say you are someone who, who likes to do fetish work with clients. Who cares, right? You know, like, who cares? What, what do you
0: think the sex workers want from society?
2: I think, I mean, they they want a lot of different things. This is a diverse community. So um, a woman who was at the St. James Infirmary working there and uh, does independent research, Alex Alex Lutnick, um, and her, her colleague there, Deborah Cohen, who was the medical director at the St. James Infirmary, they did a study about, you know, what do sex workers want? in terms of legal reform, right? And actually they did this survey of sex workers through the St. James Infirmary and they found they wanted diverse things. Some wanted to keep it criminalized. Um, some, Some thought a decriminalization model where there's kind of no penalties but also no specific regulations was a good thing. Others wanted regulations like sort of an Amsterdam model. This is a diverse community, right? And not everybody has the same, just like not all auto workers think they want the same kind of unionization policies or whatever, the sex workers are the same.
0: So what's the Amsterdam model? I, I'm not familiar.
2: So in Amsterdam, this is what's called a legalization model. So sex work is legalized, but also then very specifically regulated. So um, sex workers have to have a license. There, there are probably testing requirements. This is similar in Nevada. Right, so um, the Nevada um, regime is actually quite um, punitive in a sense. So this, a lot of sex workers. It's regulated by county, right? And so in some places, if you are a sex worker in a brothel, you can't leave the brothel for two weeks, for example. You have to get tested every, you know, certain number of days or weeks, and all this kind of stuff. So that's more of a regulation model, um, whereas you know a decriminalization model is just this is not something that is. Um, criminalized, but it's not specifically regulated. You'd be like any other kind of independent contractor.
1: Right, right. Um, we, we've, we've been talking about sex work. Becky didn't necessarily like the idea at first. I think she was following with certain narratives, and I'll let you give your, your point of view. But what I wanted to ask right now, as we talk about sex work, when we talk about sex work, we're starting to accept it as something that we can talk about. Mm-hmm. It's something that has a certain normality to it because we're yeah. talking about it. Um, the forbidden narrative that the prostitute has to be kicked out of town on a stagecoach um, starts to be questioned.
2: Well, and I think that's really been the case, especially with a lot of technological developments, especially the internet and the development of mobile technology since the '90s. Um, that shifted most sex work off the streets. I mean, street sex work is, I mean, it definitely is a thing, but it it's the one that's most likely to be arrested still. But it's it's not a thing like most online sex work, or the, at least negotiating the transaction online, whether you're texting someone, paying by Venmo, or whatever, um, but then also um, as we saw, especially with the pandemic, right, when so many people were online and glued to their screens, an explosion of use of, of sites like OnlyFans, right, where where people do virtual sex work, right, they're posting videos of themselves, doing you know, whatever it is they want to show in their followers. Otherwise called pornography. Yes, more self-produced content. Yeah. Right, right. Yeah.
1: You're not working through an agency, Yeah. Either. No, you're not in a studio, per se. Um, The question that I think I've been getting to, wanted to get to the whole podcast is, and we've been talking about this, normalizing this idea of of the prostituted woman, as you used before. Can attitudes about prostitution ever really change in this country? Uh, That is making it impossible. I mean, we're in a, let me put it this way. We're in a country in which it's becoming impossible for a woman to control her own body right? I mean, the narratives about prostitution are, as you said at the beginning, narratives about a woman mm-hmm. making a choice. Is this ever going to change in this country? Because we seem to be moving in the other direction.
2: I mean, I guess it's it's change where, right? So I think in, in, certain, demographic, in or certain demographic and other spaces, so let's say you go to Congress in Washington, most people are going to say, oh my god, this is terrible. It's all sex trafficking, especially if you're a Republican. But you talk to a lot of younger people like even talking to my students to them sex work is just not a big deal right this is just kind of part of the continuum of ways that people you know express themselves sexually earn income whatever right i think it really depends on who you're talking to it's much more normalized in some segments of the population than it is in others
0: alan brought up this idea of of Talking to um, people about sex work, and I was like,
1: "She's making I a had, face right now, yeah. <laughs> with radio listeners." Hey,
0: I don't want to put words to that face, but it was. It, I had a. I think I had to really start examining my own feelings. That I, I mean, I hadn't. I hadn't really. I have to say, though, I did. I do believe and did believe then that it should not be a criminal. It shouldn't be criminalized. Period. That's. That's. I believe. Um, but I, I did still have this feeling that well but I wouldn't want my daughter to be a sex worker, right?
1: Or our grandchild to be right, a sex worker. Right. Right.
0: right? So I happened to be with my daughter and my niece last weekend. We were all together and I, I told them about the, the podcast we had with India Tusi and I wanted and I said we're gonna have another podcast. I said so I wanted to ask them how they felt. And you were talking about the younger people. They're both much younger than, than me, of another generation. Um, So this is what my daughter, uh, she wrote me, I said, I I don't want to misquote you, so she wrote, I feel that if the work is by choice and you are working in a way that feels empowering to you and that you are not beholden to another person on an unfair labor practice, for example a pimp or a madam or what have you, in the the traditional sense, then it is not my place to judge. Transactional sex does not have to be
2: dirty or self-deprecating. And I mean, what she describes, don't we want that in all workplaces? Exactly. Right? exactly. You know, and these are something in this country, and this is what gets lost when the focus becomes so myopic on sex work and sex trafficking, is that there are many people in many labor situations who are in coercive, abusive Underpaid. So we think of the re- that a few years ago, the New York Times did this expose on nail salons, right? How many times do we walk by a nail salon in New York City where people are breathing chemicals? They can't. They're underpaid. I can't go into one of those. Yeah. Oh, and right? they were trafficking. They were trafficking the the nail salon. The, the, yes. the people, the workers. Yeah, right? yeah, yeah. And yeah. and where was, you know, where were all? And a lot of the major anti-trafficking organizations are located here in New York City. Where were they on that? They were silent. Why? Because it's not the girl thrown in the back of a van for sex right right this what your daughter describes is what we want in all workplaces and so this is really the bigger issue is like whether you're doing sex or you're doing nails or you're a college professor right like you want to work in uh, conditions where you're paid fa- paid fairly and respected and that's that's the real issue yeah right
1: right it's it's poverty yes it's getting work yeah it's supplying you know funds for your family that's what it's about yeah exactly yeah
0: yeah i have to say uh, these are conversations have really changed my you know i've really had a look at that it it was fallow and so it's really changed my perspective
2: well and it's you know i I wouldn't be too hard on yourself because it's it's very hard to you know if you're not studying this uh, the mainstream media isn't interested in these more complicated narratives right So they're not interested in hearing, you know, well, I did this for a while because it's what I needed to do and I was fine and I'd rather do that than wait tables at... Exactly. At TGI Fridays, or, or clean, you know. clean floors someplace. Exactly. Or especially yeah. because you can make so much more money. Yes, and, yeah. And get further in your life. And this is something, so there's a scholar, uh, Angela Jones at Farmingdale State College, who's done a, an amazing studies of, of webcam workers, right? So these are sex workers who do basically producing their own kind of pornography content through different webcam providers. And, you know, this is what a lot of the women and, and other people that she's talked to have said is that, you know, I I control my hours, um, the startup costs are low. I control the content. You know, and and now as post kind of My
1: clients are happy. My
2: clients are happy. I've I've low risk for injury or anything, right? I'm you know I get to to work from home. I get to work from home, you know. So this is
1: Yeah that sounds like a really good job. Yeah. Yeah. Come to think of it. Yeah. But
2: I mean now there's there is in the research that's coming out you know, there, there's been kind of, especially during the pandemic, kind of market saturation, right? So this idea that you can just go on OnlyFans, for example, and get rich is... I mean, these companies, like OnlyFans, are taking a big cut, right? And there's so much competition um, that it's really kind of only the celebrities on OnlyFans who are doing really well. But, I mean, this is this was an income stream for a lot of people. It is a lot for a lot of people. Right. Yeah.
1: You know, I keep going down to the idea that we're having this very sensible conversation here mm-hmm. about sex work. In a very civilized and, you know, um, looking way. But yet, I don't think this country's ever going to turn the narrative around.
0: I wouldn't say ever. I really wouldn't say ever. We've
2: all Maybe all the
1: old Republicans and Democrats need to I die. I think it may
2: be state, like everything in this country, it'll be state by state and locality by locality. Well, yeah, okay.
1: could be. Yeah. Was there anything else you wanted to share with us?
2: Um... Actually, the one thing I would share and that I I always and I, you know, I get a lot of calls from journalists about uh, sex work and sex trafficking issues, is I always say talk to sex workers themselves. Like, you know, I've I've had the privilege of being able to study this topic, but really sex workers are the people who know their needs best. And whether it's policy or journalism, talk to the sex workers. Like if we if we wanted to change things about the auto industry or the real estate industry or whatever, we talk to people in those industries um, we do the same for this industry, and as well. we're going
1: to continue with this um, conversation because we've contacted the communication director at Sex, uh, Sex Worker Project. Yeah, that's an
2: amazing place. Yeah, yeah. and yeah. so
1: we we would like to continue yeah. opening up this narrative yeah. to something that's a little more sensible.
2: Yeah, yep. and yep. I yep. and I think like again, there there are many groups who like what I'm saying is just not even interesting because people just think this way, but. I think there are certain groups, um, many older people, uh, there are people in other parts of the country that maybe uh, are not as liberal, right? And so I think it's a very um, audience-specific, you know, messaging. Yeah. Yeah. And there's actually another another organization that's doing amazing work. It's called the Old Pros Network, and they do podcasting and storytelling around the sex industry. And the woman, uh, Caitlin Bailey, who's kind of head of this organization, she does... Uh, a whole show on the history of sex work. And so um, this is, you know, one, uh, again, another place where it's sex workers telling their own story. And, you know, really, and they, they do a great thing where they target different audiences with different messages about this to kind of like open up how they think about oh, it. to, to maybe yeah. allow
1: them to start listening. Yeah, yeah. Well, right, that would be very we interesting. We have to listen to that, that out. out mm-hmm. to check yeah. that out. They do
2: a podcast. It's
1: fantastic.
0: We are Bar Crawl Radio podcast, talking to people who are knowledgeable and passionate about investigating the world we live in realistically. We have been talking with Professor Samantha Magic of John Jay College about her 2014 book, Sex Work Politics. Thank you, Samantha, Thank for you taking so this much. time. Thank you for talking to us. Talk to fun. Thanks. Took a
1: while to plan, but we <laughs> got it. We got it. Thanks, done. COVID. I know. Most, most interesting. <laughs> Thank you. Stay well.